Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unlikely Hikers podcast and live show. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, we record a live show with an audience via Zoom where I lead a conversation with someone in the outdoor world that I find fascinating. But today, we're going to do something a little different. We're taking the Unlikely Hikers feed and bringing it to the podcast with a very special storytelling episode. My guests are Latreya Graham, trail name Indiana Jenkins, and Tyler Lau, trail name The Prodigy. And I'll be telling a story of my own. My trail name is Jenny Brusso because I don't have one. I'm your host. I am a queer, fat writer, hiker, group hike leader, and founder of Unlikely Hikers, which is an Instagram community, hiking group, and now a podcast. On our Instagram page, you'll find stories from disabled and plus-size folks, people of color, queer and trans people, and beyond, just giving us the real real about who's getting outdoors and why, and you know why it matters. A few words for those of you joining our live show. Please keep your cameras off. There is a chat feature where you can send comments and questions that only I can see. We are going to have each person tell their story and immediately after the story is when we're going to do a very short Q&A. Before I introduce our guests, I always say a little something like talk about some issue that's um, on my mind or, you know, something that's going on in the world and whatnot. And today that feels really hard because I just feel a lot of anger and I, I'm worn out and I'm sort of feeling like I'm on the edge of hopelessness. And I know that it's temporary. I know that I feel this way often, but it feels hard to share information in a way that isn't shrouded in bitterness and you know fear. And I also know that people don't always want to hear this kind of stuff and that's hard too. I see a lot of, you know, gratitude posts on on social media and a lot of like silver linings and things like that and there's there's nothing wrong with that but I also am really skeptical of the ways that we, you know, can acknowledge our privileges, but we are not actually talking about what is happening. You know, of course, take mental inventory of how you're doing, where you're at, your gratitude for your, your home and, uh, you know, having a safe place or, or, or whatever it is. But also, you know, we actually have to say the words for the things that are are happening, you know, and um, tragedy should not be the thing that teaches us how to act right or like teaches us gratitude. It, this, even then, it seems like it only really makes a difference when something happens directly to us. You know, people of color and disabled people, fat people have always been disproportionately maltreated by doctors and COVID-19 is, is shining a huge spotlight on that, on who is dying at exponential rates because of COVID-19. And 
I'm scared because I've been alive long enough to see terrible things happen throughout the world. And those with, of us with the most privilege just kind of devolve into this collective amnesia after the fact, it, you know, ignoring the, how much more traumatized our, our society has become. So if I could say anything, you know, first of all, there's no silver linings about a pandemic. There's just not. Um, and I just, I really want to encourage you all to start talking about what is actually happening and use the words for, you know, what we're experiencing. And, you know, of, of course, you know, keep saying your gratitude and, and, you know, the looking at the bright side of things, but not at the cost of, of avoiding talking about what really needs to be talked about. I hope that doesn't sound as bitter <laughs> or shamey um, as it might, because I really don't mean it that way. I just, I need to see some more realness because I feel, you know, I know that I'm not the only one who's angry. I see it all over the place, but I also feel concerned with the lack of articulating of that rage and pain. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. Words matter and they have so much impact. And sometimes what we don't say has even more of an impact. Thank you for listening. And uh, we're going to, you know, bring in a little bit of levity so you don't turn this off, but I'm also going to keep talking. So um, I'm going to be sharing my story first today. Then we are going to have my amazing guests, uh, Tyler Lau and Latreya Graham share a story. And we're doing the Q&A right after each story. So get your questions going and uh, we'll get to those soon. So um, this story is about my first backpacking trip ever. And this was less than two years ago. It was in June, 2018. And I wrote a big version of this for my blog. I'll, I'll, I'll post it in our show notes, but there's tons of photos and things are a little more fleshed out. So Brie and I, my partner, we were going on our first backpacking trip and we were getting a really late start that day because I had just led a hike with unlikely hikers. And uh, it was also raining all day, which sort of felt like a bad time to, you know, have our first uh, backpacking trip. But we had had this plan for about a month. And truly, we'd been gearing up for years to do this. You know, it was hard to get all of the things that we needed. We couldn't afford all of the gear. And just over a lot of time of people donating stuff to us and whatnot, we finally got everything we needed. So unfortunately, it was raining, but we were doing the damn thing. <laughs> uh, I came home from doing the group hike and we got all of our stuff together. We had laid out piles that we went over like three times the night before. And, you know, we weighed our packs and we had like uh, just under 29 pounds, like fully loaded with water and food. And, you know, my pack has gotten lighter since then. But at that time, you know, the internet told me that that was a good weight. So it was, I felt pretty good about it. We picked one of our favorite trails. It was the Salmon River Trail on Mount Hood, which is about an hour away from us. And it's a trail that I have day hiked many times. So I knew it pretty inside and out. I knew that we wouldn't have any problem with water, you know, all those things that 
that when you've never been on a trail before can can build some kind of anxiety, like where will you camp? Where will you get water? Like I didn't have to worry about those things. So I felt, felt super prepared and, you know, not that like scarcity feeling. We get to the trailhead. It's already late afternoon, early evening even, and we begin our trek. And at first I'm kind of feeling surprised by how easy the whole thing is. And, uh, you know, and I knew it was not the time to like start patting myself on the back or whatever, but I just, you know, was feeling confident and like I, I actually did all of the things to get this right. And that was nice. You know, I, my steps definitely felt heavier, but than a day hike, but it was, you know, it was happening and it felt good. I was definitely getting drenched and, um, but the good news is, is that, you know, my, everything in my pack was staying nice and dry. So we had a super small, uh, goal that first day, you know, it, because we were starting so late and because it was raining, basically we just wanted to find a good campsite and, uh, set up camp so that we could have like a big day the next day and, you know, already be out there and whatnot. And, we so we only hiked in about two miles and and it was it was beautiful but yeah we were drenched and we set up all of our stuff and a lot of these things were all first times first time things for us so we set up our tent for the first time and i had just gotten i had just gotten this tent because the tent i had before which was this wonderful gift from somebody was this ultralight two-person tent and i had a chance to use it like a month before on a camping trip and it was just big enough for me so, you know, I was thinking if you're like a bigger person, uh, a single person tent or ultralight tent is probably not going to work for you. So anyway, I get this new tent and it's for three people. And I'm thinking, okay, like for someone of my size and someone of my partners, like medium size or whatever, I was thinking this is probably the thing, but this tent was huge. And I was just like feeling this weird fear, shame thing about what people on the internet were going to think about it. Uh, because I just noticed that on social media and whatnot, folks are really critical about, um, about gear and weight and things like that. And I was like, oh, I just don't want to go through this. So and we also had our first dehydrated meal. It was the lasagna mountain house. And it was really fun. And we, I was already seeing even that first evening, so many things that I could have left at home, like things that I, I did not need. Like I brought a whole roll of toilet paper, even though, you know, we were going to be out for two nights. How would we even go through a roll of toilet paper? Also, that's a lot of toilet paper to have to, you know, pack out. It was forecasted like clear skies the next day. So we, you know, we're hoping for the best, but just kind of in it to win it regardless. So we go to sleep, everything's fine. I sleep well. Um, and I wake up to the sun shining uh, and no rain. So Bree made breakfast and coffee and I packed and everything was going really great. But I also was noticing that I was really critical of myself, which is pretty normal, but it's like every little misstep, if you can even call it that. I just, I think maybe I had read too many through hiking blogs. <laughs> After our tent was dry-ish, we packed up the last of our things and we hit the trail again. Both of us needed water. So here was another first. We got to filter water and uh, with a Sawyer squeeze and it went really well. 
I, of course, it was so easy that it sort of felt suspicious, but it, 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 I just followed the YouTube videos and everything was fine. Brie was a little more skeptical than me and put a little aqua mirror, mirror in their water uh, on top of filtering it. And it kind of made it taste like pool water, which was, you know, sort of comforting. We filter the water, we get back on trail and we finally get, it's like a couple miles later and we get to the viewpoint that is usually my turnaround point for a day hike. And it's beautiful. And also at this point, I should say that we had been climbing consistently the whole time. And, and really, I was finally feeling that full pack weight and it was intense. Um, we took a long break, had some snacks. Brie even took a little nap. Um, it was really, really hard. And honestly, uh, we about a mile and a half before our next camp, it was already like mid-afternoon. So you know, these miles were taking us like over an hour each. And, um, you know, it was, it was slow going, but it felt good. And, you know, we're making all these jokes about how we're real backpackers now. And it just, you know, we're thinking about our next trips and just, yeah, it's great. So we decide that we're going to, you know, when we finally make that next mile and a half, we're, we're at this point just so depleted. We need to eat, we need water. Uh, we just need everything. So we get up and we take, get, go that last mile and a half or so to our uh, possible campsite. And this is further on the trail than I had ever been before. So we didn't really know exactly what we were going to find. And by the time we got there, we were just, you know, we were already depleted. So we were beyond. And we decided we were going to drop our stuff and make lunch and then go get water. At this point, we were almost done with all of our water that we had filtered earlier. And so I'm making food and just kind of feeling a little cocky and good and, you know, breeze setting up the tent. And it's just, we have this beautiful spot near a meadow, like on the edge of a meadow. It's in an actual campsite that someone had made. So we're not like on the meadow, which you're not really supposed to do. And lunch is done. And I call Brie over and they come over and we're eating and having a good time. And then everything changed. <laughs> um, everything changed in that moment. Um, we, there was a huge gust of wind and our tent blew over a cliff. Yeah, I, I said that our tent blew over a cliff and it was, you know, we, we were looking out over the edge of this cliff and it was, we could see like a corner of it between some trees, but it was too dangerous to even entertain trying to get. And, uh, you know, reality just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I, it was, I just felt like all of this like rush of shame and, uh, you know, my little ego deflating and everything. And, breeze like talking about how they can get it but there's just really really no way I'm so new at this point still so new to being like a leader of an outdoor community and I was I, I'm supposed to be the one to show people that these things can be done and 
you know, first of all, that kind of, nobody needs to have that kind of pressure on themselves, but I, I just had all of this pressure on myself and, you know, it was an honest mistake. Brie just, you know, in the time that I called them over for lunch, they hadn't yet staked it down, but we were both just so depleted that, yeah, a mistake happened. And I know that it's funny, but in the moment it was like the worst thing that could ever happen. Also at the time I was a groundskeeper for granite gear, which basically meant I was picking up trash on all of my hikes. And I basically just littered my tent. So that was pretty terrible. <laughs> and we were, you know, far from our trailhead. And it's like, okay, we are about to have to hike out this entire trail. I'm horrified. I'm definitely angry at Brie, but I'm also feeling like, you know, I could have done, I could have done it too. And I wasn't about to try to make them feel you know, bad about it, any worse than they already did. And so we're on the trail, we filter our water, we only fill up a liter because we know that's all we're going to need to get back. And, you know, they kind of joke about it being their Cheryl Strayed boot moment. And I still couldn't laugh. And, you know, but we hiked fast, like we hiked as if we were wearing our day packs, which is kind of amazing, because it, it was like the longest miles of our lives on the way in. You know, and I was even having these funny thoughts, like I might not, like maybe I wouldn't tell anybody or maybe I would just keep it to myself and go out again and try to have like a successful experience and pretend that was my first time. And, you know, just saying that out loud, I know how ridiculous it is. And of course I told the truth and told everybody and, you know, but I also knew that I would never make a mistake like that again, because first of all, I didn't have a tent anymore but also because if there's never going to be a time where we accidentally don't stake down the tent or put something really heavy in it it's just that's like a, a mistake you never make again and we'll just micromanage the hell out of each other forever probably because of it so you know Bree was kind of trying to show that we'd actually had like a very, or tell me that we'd had, you know, we'd met, we'd met all of our goals. We even went further than we said we were going to. And the only thing that didn't really happen was we didn't stay a second night. Um, you know, and also with outdoor adventures, how often do things go as planned? No one was hurt. You know, no one died because they tried to retrieve a tent from the side of a freaking mountain. Um, so that was a success. And, you know, even with all of these terrible thoughts going through my head, as we got back to the car, I really was already thinking when I could possibly give this another shot. The end. <laughs> Thank you. That's my story. Does anybody have any questions for me? We're probably gonna move through this very quickly. One question is, what was the best thing you brought? And I, um, I, we brought a deck of cards and played cards in our tent when it was rainy that first night, obviously that first night, because we didn't get a second night. Um, but yeah, we brought a, a, a deck of cards and played games and, and that was really fun. It was really sweet. It kind of felt like normal camping, which was, was comforting because we were, you know, out of our comfort zones and whatnot. Um, <laughs> Somebody commented, massive empathy for that, but it is also the best first backpacking story in retrospect, of course. And I completely agree with that. That was actually another thing. 
on our way out when we were camp, I'll never forget this thought on our way out. Uh, when we were getting close to the car again and, you know, I was like having those funny thoughts about possibly not telling the story or whatever. That was just like trauma brain working. I would have never told a lie or, or not told the truth. And um, one of the thoughts I was having that was so annoying was, Oh, I wish this wasn't a good story. Like I wish this, cause I'm being a writer that I'm thinking about stuff like that. And I wish this was like a, boring story of success was what I was thinking. <laughs> Thank you all so much. All right, we are going to introduce our next guest, our first guest. Thank you all for listening to me talk that long. Our guest is Tyler, the prodigy Lao, and he hails from the US and Hong Kong. He grew up not appreciating the outdoors, but that changed when he started doing outdoor work like trail maintenance, wildfire management, and rehabilitating fragile habitats. At work, he found himself experiencing discrimination and stereotyping, which opened his eyes to the diversity problem in the outdoors. He wanted to be a part of making it more accessible to all, and in 2018, he became the first person of color and first Asian American to complete a calendar year triple crown, which is, this is massive, um, which is the, the completion of the PCT, the Appalachian Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail in one calendar year. Yikes, but also really awesome. He used the hike to promote and fundraise for organizations working on diversity efforts in the outdoors. All right. Welcome, Tyler. Hey. Yay. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Will you tell us a story? Uh, yeah, I'm debating about changing it now that I've heard that one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, but I'll, I'll go with the one I planned. Uh, so yeah, I was attempting a calendar year triple crown in 2018 and the Pacific Crest Trail was my first leg and I was hiking with a couple who was also doing it and we all got to a highway. I'm not going to name the town because I don't want to generalize it due to uh, my experience with one person, but uh, we were hitchhiking. So anybody that hikes a long trail knows that hitchhiking is a part of it. In order to resupply, you have to go into town a lot of times and it's not always on trail. So we were hitchhiking and it took us a little longer than usual. And this guy pulls over and it's weird for anybody that's hitchhiked. Usually the person in the car doesn't get out. This guy got out of the car, which was kind of like weird to me and to everybody else. And uh, he asked us if we wanted a ride to town, which was also really weird because we all had our thumbs out and he got out of the car. So mental notes. He pulls over and gets out of the car and introduces himself to the couple I'm with, but he doesn't say anything to me. And that is kind of concerning for me. I make a mental note and think, okay, whatever, we'll just continue. And he gets in his car and in my head, I tell myself, I have to get in the car because I need to get to town. I have to get, uh, I have to get food. I'm hungry. I'm out of food. And 
through the car ride, he starts asking questions. And in my head, I just remembered my experience earlier and I wanted to kind of test it. I didn't want to assume anything about him. But when he was asking these questions, he was directing it to everybody. I mean, you're in a car, you can't really go anywhere. And I decided to answer one of them and he didn't respond. I just kept thinking, don't make assumptions. This will be okay. But you could feel the tension building. And then my other hiking partners, they responded. He responded to them. So I did it again after he asked another question and noted that he didn't respond again. And that's when I realized, okay, this is actually happening. And I don't really want to cause a scene, but this is bothering me but we needed to get to town. So I decided to just not say anything. And when we got to town, he dropped us off at the grocery store. He said goodbye and it took everything in me not to say anything other than thank you to see if he would respond. I don't know if he acknowledged me or not, but once he left, I turned to my hiking partners and just flat out said, did that just fucking happen? And they said, yes, we're sorry. And I, I appreciated that, it, though at the same time, it was really hard because I didn't want to put them in a weird situation, but we were just put in this situation where this man did not acknowledge me as a human or as a person, and it bothered the heck out of me. So I went shopping, bought a few more items, kind of like comfort food to make myself feel a little better. And then got, uh, got a ride back to trail and I just hiked angry, which I didn't enjoy, but it was just eating at me inside. Like, what did I do wrong? Like, was it my fault? But then I realized he never acknowledged me. So how do I deal with a situation like that moving forward? I don't know his experience with Asian Americans or whatever it was, but, you know, just to say hi to someone, you know, especially for being on a long distance trail, usually it's a very welcoming environment, but it just goes to show as a reason why I was hiking was to promote diversity efforts and to show that it's not all just one look as far as like the people hiking and the communities. So fast forward onto the Continental Divide Trail and I'm hiking with a guy named Pathfinder who I think is on this uh, chat room right now. And we're trying to make miles to get to town and here there's a fire ahead from some hikers going northbound. We're going southbound. So we're going towards Mexico. Everybody else is going towards Canada. And we keep hearing different sizes of this fire. It was like playing telephone, um, that classic game in school where you, one person would say a statement and see how that statement or question uh, ends up after going around the class. And it just kept growing as we kept running into people. And finally we got to this hiker where uh, I actually trusted her because I had run into her briefly on the PCT beforehand and knew her pedigree she was also finishing a calendar or she was also finishing her triple crown 
And I knew she had a lot of miles under her belt. She was also a professor. So I was like, well, she should probably have her heads about her, her head, a, a good head on her shoulders. And she told us there was a cold front coming in, which given wildland fire background, which you don't really need per se, but if you know if there's a cold front coming in and there's a fire and it's dry, high winds are coming, which is going to push the fire into a very dangerous situation. So we had to assess what was the best thing to do. And the next morning we got up and the smoke was starting to grow. We could smell it. We could see it. And we made the decision at the next road crossing, um, which we had poured over our maps that we had downloaded. And we knew there was a road coming up, but we didn't know where it really went. We knew it headed east towards a town, which, you know, if there's a road and there's a town, there's usually signal, even in rural uh, areas. So we made the decision to take the road east. And by the time we got to the end where it turned north, we realized our maps on our uh, downloaded maps had run out. So we didn't know how far it went north other than the fact that that was just the way we came and we didn't want to go that way. And if we had followed the lines of the map continuing east, we'd be traversing over private property to get to the highway. And there was a gate there that said no trespassing. And we both looked at each other thinking, well, I don't know any other way to go other than through this property to get there. And we're just gonna have to deal with it if we run into someone. So we both agreed we should jump over the fence. I don't recommend that to anybody. Uh, trespassing is no fun, but we were put in a situation with a wildfire and we needed to get to town to figure out what was going on. So we jumped the fence and just as we get over the fence, literally you hear a truck. It was straight out of a movie scene or a TV show. It was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> and the truck rolled up slowly and I looked over at Pathfinder and I was like, Hey man, I think you should do the talking. And I explained just, I'm not from around here. I mean, yes, I've lived in Montana, but just look at me, like look at me and, and I'm making an assumption, like what the rancher is going to think. Pathfinder is Caucasian. So it's like, I think it's going to be better for you to do the talking. So he agrees, which is a hard decision or to make in on the spot. Like I felt bad putting him on the spot, but we both agreed it was the best way to move forward. The truck rolls up, it felt like eternity. Like, it just didn't feel like he was getting any closer, but he rolls up, uh, rolls down his window and he's looking us up and down. We do our best to look presentable as a through hiker. That's really hard when you go <laughs> days at a time without showering. Um, I also had dirty girl gators that had watermelons on them. So I don't know what I look like to him. And, uh, he asks us where we're going or what we're doing. Uh, Pathfinder explains, about the fire and we needed to get to town uh, we have no reception we don't know if we're going to get stuck and put in a dangerous situation and even though i said i wasn't going to talk i finally spoke up at some point during the conversation kind of not like pleading but just like making sure that he knew like we're not dangerous we're just hiking and then finally he kind of broke the ice and asked us if we were hiking to mexico i'm like oh my gosh he knows what we're doing okay and we said yes and he said, you know, jumping over fences and trespassing around here is not a good idea. And we're like, yeah, we know. We're sorry. We're sorry. But I'm going to let you through. Here's my name because you might run into my brother or someone else on the ranch. Tell them I let you through. 
we like to ride the trail. We see you guys all the time. We understand about the fire. And we thanked him and we kept going, got through his property. And it was just one of those experiences where I compared it to the other experience I had on the PCT was this person on the PCT had maybe assumptions and stereotypes about me. And then on the CDT, I had assumptions and stereotypes about someone else. And it just went to show like, if I'm trying to be more inclusive and open-minded and trying to diversify this space, I need to be open to other people's experiences as well. And the amount of good that I've seen on trail has definitely outweighed the amount of bad. And it brings strangers together and from so many different backgrounds. And that was just one of those experiences. Like I kept thinking worst case scenario, but luckily this man was really nice and understanding and it just allowed me to confront my own biases. So yeah. Am I done rambling? I think so. <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. Yeah. I um, got really nervous there, uh, especially, you know, with how long you were saying it seemed like the truck was taking to get to you. I was just like, oh God, what is going to happen? You know, I also do want to say though that, I mean, first of all, I love, I love the, the lesson of course of, of keeping your mind open to things or not going into things with, um, you know, prejudgments and whatnot, but also sometimes our prejudgments are there to, you know, keep us safe. You know, I just, you know, wanted to validate that a little bit, but yeah, um, absolutely. But at the same time, I'm so glad it was this situation <laughs> for sure. And that is an important thing. Our, the suspension of doubt will, will keep our, it's good for our mental health for sure. You know, yeah. um, we do have some questions for you. Uh, rabbit has a question, you know, and, and this was actually something I had written down too. you know, it, with your friends in the, in the situation with the guy who just would not acknowledge you being a human, what, what, what is a way that someone could be a, a good ally to you in a moment like that? That's definitely something I've thought about and I would love to hear anybody else's input. Um, I think I talked to someone actually it might've been rabbit. <laughs> if that's the rabbit I'm thinking about. And uh, they had mentioned like they would have spoken up and said, Hey, I'm uncomfortable in this situation because you're not acknowledging my friend next to us. And I think we should all get out of the car. And that's something where you're, you're put on the spot. So it's really hard. Like it's easy to say, I'm going to do that if I'm put in a situation, but to when you're in a situation where you need to get somewhere, um, yeah, it, it, I hate to say it's situational, but sometimes it is. And I think talking about it with people is super helpful and knowing before you get in a car, like, hey, if it's dangerous or we're uncomfortable, what's our plan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're, 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 to you're right. You know, it's in that situation sometimes, or in situations like that, sometimes speaking up, you know, just adds to the agitation. And it's so unfortunate, those moments where you can't stand up for yourself or for your friend. Like you said, you, you feel it out and you, you see, or, or maybe have like a strategy beforehand for something like that. We have a question from Shira. Um, do you have any next 
plans? Any, or maybe a big route, maybe the Oregon Desert Trail? Hmm. Is there a wink in there? Uh, I, there's <laughs> not, but it's implied for okay. sure. Uh, yeah, actually the Oregon Desert Trail is something I'm very curious about. Um, my, my plans for this year, as everybody's, has changed. I've postponed my initial plans. So right now, kind of going with the flow and just respecting the trails and the associations that protect the trails and, you know, the organizations that maintain them and not going on them because it, uh, again, no one knows when this will end and it'll be easier to manage if we're not out there and putting ourselves in situations where we need to be rescued, so. Awesome, uh, let's see. So one, maybe just one more question. How did the experience of your car ride affect I mean, did it have an effect on the rest of your, your track? Yeah, I think I, I alluded to it of just, I, I hiked really angry the rest of the day, um, which, you know, sometimes hiking angry is helpful. And if I want to make miles, I'll just go. But it just made me think a little more, like every time I put my thumb out, like, mm -hmm. am I going to get into this again? And what am I going to do next time? Um, I tried not to let it affect me, but it, you know, I think back on it now and I'm not, I don't get like a bad gut feeling, but at that time it just ate at me and I didn't feel good. You know, I didn't feel, yeah, I it, it was dehumanizing and it was hard to process it as I was walking because I had this big goal, but then this little blip in my journey, like, you know, it's amplified when you're out there because you're in your own head. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. It was really cool having you be a part of this. Thank you again. Yay. You Bye. <laughs> All right. And our next guest is Latreya Graham. Latreya is a journalist and fifth generation farmer from South Carolina. Her writing interests revolve around the dynamics of race, gender norms, class, and nerd culture. Her work has appeared in multiple publications, including ESPNW, The Guardian, The New York Times, Garden and Gun, and Teen Vogue. That is a lineup. Well, welcome. Thank Thanks for joining Thank us. Of course. Thank you for having me. And this is a fabulous idea. And I'm like so touched to be here. I'm going to talk about how I got my trail name. Um, so Indiana Jenkins, if you sort of missed the intro, is my trail name. And so last year, this time, I did my first writer's residency ever. Um, I had sort of wanted to do one of these or whatever and felt I wasn't at the right place in my career and was super worried about it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. It's going to be fine. I actually got a writer's residency in Great Smoky Mountains National Park called um, the Steve Kemp residency, and I was there for six weeks. And so um, I get my things and I go up to the Smokies and I'm like, this is going to be fantastic and there will be wildflowers everywhere. And it's Great Smoky Mountains National Park in spring, right? And I'm just like, this is going to be great. And they ask you to choose one subject that you're super passionate about that you want to work on. Um, so I went there thinking I was going to um, talk about like brown trout 
or something, right? Because this sort of farming and sustenance background, I'm like, I will like do something in that vein. But then I get there and I found out there's like nothing on black people whatsoever in this park. Not a pamphlet, not a video, not a book, there's nothing. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to sort of pivot, you know, and take on this kind of, um, kind of weighty role because a lot of people don't know before this national park became a park it um, was just land settlements and there's this idea that people in Appalachia were so poor that they did not enslave people but they did enslave human beings um, and so my job was to search for clues about the lives of the formerly enslaved people there so uh, it's this beautiful place but this like super heavy um sort of weight that I'm carrying with me, but like the one thing I looked forward to every week were our walks with Steve Kemp. Um, and you guys may not know Steve Kemp, especially if you're not from the region, but he spent 30 years with like the Great Smoky Mountains um, Association and with the park. And so his wife's a botanist, like when you want to know something about a region or about an area, chances are he knows it. So these walks are really informative and beautiful. Um, and all of that sort of stuff. So I look forward to them every week and they happen on Mondays. And I usually hate Mondays, um, just much like the cartoon commercial or whatever, but I was like, oh my God, I love Mondays. It's gonna be time for another hike. And Great Smoky Mountains National Park is huge. So there are a lot of places to go. So one week we do Elkmont, one week we do Cades Cove, one week we do O'Connell Lefty. Um, and this particular story happens in Cataloochee Valley. Um, we decided to go take a hike there. Um, the park is well known for elk and they were like, oh, we're going to visit a couple of churches out that way. And, you know, we're going to see some elk and all of this stuff. And it's got these beautiful vistas. And I take as many photos as I can for the gram um, because I needed people to like live vicariously with me um, in this moment. And I was like, look at this, guys. I don't hate Mondays anymore. And like, I'm wearing a pink top and it's like, it, it exists. It exists. This post exists. Um, and I was super excited about the entire thing. And then um, we go do that. We're like, oh, we're going to do this easy hike. It's, you know, maybe four miles, but it's got some river crossings. I should have known. I hate river crossings just on their own. I'm a large woman and these beams are very small. Sometimes if there's anything crossing this river, right? Um, so I kind of like get over it and deal with it. I'm like, oh, these are like my least favorite things in the world get across it, keep it moving. And I'm like, oh, this is nice. Take some pictures of like trillium that are fi finally starting to come up and all of this sort of thing. And I'm walking along and, you know, we're making conversation and he's showing us, you know, old settlements and like, you know, cars that were rusted out when they got busted for moonshining and all of this wild wacky stuff that happens sort of in Appalachia and some of these areas and things like that. And I'm not going to name the trail and I'm not going to name the exact place that we went but we come up to this particular two-story homestead and he talks to us about the family that lived there. I don't believe we have not found record of them enslaving people. This house was built uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but it's this interesting kind of big, beautiful house that you would not expect in the middle of this independent rural community. And so we're like, oh, oh that's really interesting. And he's like, oh, there's more to this area or whatever. And we're like, oh, okay. So we kind of traipse, we're still on trail slash on a, a piece of land that the national parks is okay for us to sort of walk around. And so, you know, we walk around it and we sort of look at different parts of it and things like that. And I'm like, oh, this is really enlightening. And like, 
not super heavy at all. And he's like, oh, there's a spring house attached to this. Do you want to go see the spring house and see how people cooled their meat? So things like this during the summer, if you had um, like food and things and you didn't want it to spoil, you would find a nearby creek and you would sort of build this house over it. Um, and that would keep your food cooler than if you were, um, you know, to have it, excuse me, in the house or something like that. Excuse me. Ursula Cup, people. Um, <laughs> I, you have to, you have to, like, I could not, I couldn't bring, not bring her, right? She's my favorite. Um, but, you know, he was like, oh, do you want to go see the spring house? And I'm with the other writer in residence. I forgot to mention, there's two of us. So Elise Anderson can verify the story. There's photographic evidence and there is video evidence of this story. Uh, but, you know, we're like, okay, cool. want to see the spring house, but obviously you have to get over the spring, right? And Elise is like, you know, tiptoeing across these little stones. She's like very sprightly. She's short and very lithe and, you know, spring across and then there's me. Um, your typical sort of, I'm not a bull in a china shop, but I, I definitely like walk heavy and I'm like confident in that. But I say like, there's lithe and sprightly and then there's me. Um, and I'm wearing my like, you know, brand new waterproof like Merrells. I was like, oh my God, I have finally have like the right gear because like you were talking about gear is expensive and you're always sort of anxious about what you have and stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm a real writer and I'm going to be living in a ranger station for like six weeks. I need like real boots, right? So I'm like, this is maybe my second time ever wearing these boots. The first time to see that they're comfortable, the second time to go do this hike. So we're getting ready to go over to the spring house and you know, Elise is going across the stepping stones. Steve also takes the stepping stones. My ass was like, oh, my boots are waterproof. It's fine. I'm just gonna step in the mud and like keep it moving, right? Like I don't have to worry about my feet getting wet. So I'm walking like I normally walk, which is a pretty fast clip. And I don't realize after taking the first step that I'm stuck and like my extra momentum makes me fall over face forward into a thorn bush. And <laughs> I immediately pop up and I'm like, oh my God, what happened? And I'm like hip deep in mud, right? And I'm just like, what, what? And I just, I'm like, I have these thorns all over me and stuff. And there's, there's like multiple sensory things happening all at once. And I have no idea what to do. And then Steve Kemp, remember, he's been a park ranger for 30 years. He's like, oh my God, you're stuck in quicksand. And I was like, what? And I'm just kind of standing there. And I can't believe I've got like, it's up to my hips. It's filling my pockets. And there's this picture of me with like my pack on or my little day pack thing and my hands out. Cause like I'm covered in mud. I don't know, and I'm stuck. I'm like very much stuck in this thing right now. And we're like, oh my God, how do you get out? And Steve like hands me his hand. And I was like, no, you're gonna get stuck too. And we are like well outside, like an hour outside of cell phone reception. No one is coming to save us. There is no ranger station open there right now because they're closed for the season. So even if they were able to hike out and get to a car, they would have to like go to the car, drive out of Cataluchi, drive back to the nearest town and call for some help. So we're talking like maybe two or three hours later. It's like early spring. So, you know, in the 40s, 50s, like cold enough to be uncomfortable, but not cold enough to die yet. So I'm like, okay, we're stuck here. How do we do this? And I kind of like rock back and forth. And I'm like, can I? Nope, nope, this is getting worse. And eventually Steve has his wits about him and he throws me like this giant stick. 
and I'm able to like shove it down below like the water table and like take my body, turn it sideways and like barrel roll into like the thorn bush and stuff, right? And I was like, whew, finally, solid ground. My boots are still in the quicksand. And we eventually get the quick, get them out of the quicksand. Swear to God, they are so bone dry. And I, I like put them on, we like laugh about it, right? Because I'm out of it and it's fine. Um, but we laugh about it and just kind of like, okay, let's like get the hell out of here. I will never do this again. And ever since then, I've been completely shy of water crossings. Jenny knows this because I've hiked with her and Ashley and I'm like, nope, nope, don't want to do that. I like always put my stick down first to make sure that there's something to stop it there now. Um, but yeah, so that happened. My marrows were still dry. I learned to look for quicksand. Um, but I got back and I told another hiking friend about this and we've sort of bonded over being black people in the outdoors and sort of these urban adventurers and everything that this, that means. And she's like, oh my God, she's like, Indiana Jenkins, please sit your ass down. And she's like, that's it. That's your trail name. And I was like, what? Uh, and she's like, Indiana Jenkins, you love adventure and you're asking find quicksand anywhere because Later, she understands that like I find quicksand two or three more, two, I find quicksand two more times and plus mud in the low country two more times. So I am up to like five times of almost dying um, in big vats of uh, dirt and water. So yeah, that's my story. That's how I got my trail name. Um. <laughs> no. Okay. No. So he I know, I know, I'm like, I have to brace myself. I know that quicksand exists, right. but it's also still, like, in my head, something that only happens in cartoons, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. like, I wouldn't even know, I wouldn't even know quicksand, like, what it was, I guess, until I was uh, waist deep in it, um, yeah. but <laughs> I guess, like, it quickly, because it's not that much interesting of a question, what is quicksand, like, 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 what does it look like? Is there anything we could look for to possibly avoid this. No, it looks like dirt. It had like plants growing on top of it. This thorn bush was growing on top of it. So like there was enough. It's not like desert quicksand, right? It's not what you see in an Indiana Jones movie. This particular case, we think like these people had cows or whatever and they had sort of stirred up the dirt or whatever. So you can like physically make quicksand if you stand on like a beach or whatever and sort of keep turning it up and all this sort of stuff. Um, but outside I had a video on it. But it was one of those things where, like, no, I literally just thought that I was, like, stepping in this stream to, like, get across to the other side and was quickly told that that would not be happening. And I just said, fuck it. We didn't go to the spring at all. We just didn't even try. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I don't like river crossings either. Um, but something like that would definitely probably scare me for like the rest of my hiking days yeah no I've done it like five more times and I was like well there it is and like I keep extra boots in the car in case I have to go I thought I was gonna have to leave there barefoot like I oh, thought no. that I was going to have to hike the like three or four miles back to the car without any shoes oh gosh it's fine <laughs> like it's adventure like you don't like Yay. things do not go things do not go according to plan and that's basically what all three of us have said tonight. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. That's a, a way to tie it together. Uh, we got a good question from okay. Sabrina Wilson, who I love. They said, um, is your res if your residency is over, do you know if the work and research on discovering the stories 
of black and or enslaved folks has continued? So I'm still like working with the park off and on. Um, and there's this magazine called Smokey's Life and I'll be working through that. So I think I went in thinking, okay, I'm gonna do this like quick six week project of some sort, right? Um, and I realized very quickly that this is like a multi-year project. I'm not the only person that was working on it. At one point, um, oh my God, his first name, Adam McNeil, um, who has a who is working on his PhD in Black History was working on the O'Connell Lefty North Carolina side of the park, and I was working on the Tennessee side of the park to get some of these stories together. So I've gone back to the park several times to sort of um, work on this story. And one of the articles that will be coming out either later this year or early next year is I found this this enslaved woman. Her name was Sook Turner, and she um, lived and died in this park. She was owned in this park, and I did this hike from. Um, sort of the area where we think she came in to her grave and then out. And so um, I'm working on a piece about that, what that was like, what we know, what we don't, um, all of that. And like found her descendants, found where her son was buried and all that stuff. Um, and like living descendants, like current people that like are are tied to this person. That's wild. I mean, just to be that close to this person's lived life, you know, tracing their footsteps. Um, thank you for sharing that. I, I would love to, to read anything that comes out of this, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is there anywhere that we can access any of this online or is it still just all a work in progress? Yeah, it's all still work in progress. I don't know when, I, and I, this is not a negative. This is just a factual statement. Sometimes it takes the parks time to get things together and to make it sort of an interactive experience for users and things like that. So that collaboration is still happening. I'll let you know when this article is out. And there are a couple of pleas for information. So if you go to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, their Instagram and stuff like that, you'll see pictures of Adam. They put out several articles and things like that about park rangers and looking for people tied to this area. So I'm doing a lot of work with the Freedman School that was over in the Maryville, North Carolina side. There was the idea that the Underground Railroad came through this area and things. So families have information and things like that that we don't have. Mm. And so we're still very much in this process of like, I just scanned like 10,000 photos or whatever, or like uh, rosters of school children. And I'm like, okay, can I find any of these people or their descendants? So it's very, very new on my end. The park end, it's been in, in work for a while and Adam's done some great work. That sounds so cool. And it, it, it touches on a question that somebody else asked. So we're gonna do one more question. Okay. Uh, and uh, this one is coming from Patrick, who is somebody who tunes in every week. So nice seeing your name on there, Patrick. Um, do you have any tips for uncovering the history that national parks and other public land spaces, et cetera, don't tend to share, especially about like black and indigenous, like colonial genocidal history type things. And this is a great question because I have actually, I always am trying to find this information too. And it is very difficult as we know, a lot of history is buried or just never recorded. And, and like you said, it's often lives on uh, via people. So right. yeah. Yeah, um, that's a really good one. I'm still finding, I don't want to call it a technique, but a way of doing that. But like when I am on a piece of land, 
I am always thinking, one, about like who was here before this became a park? Like we love to think that America was this nice open place and we're like, oh, we're just gonna rope this place off and we're gonna go frolic in it, right? No, somebody else either used this place for ceremony or it had some significance to them or they lived on it or were sustained by it. So this idea that like, you know, it was open and free is obviously a, a, a fallacy. So I'm like, who was here before this was a thing and what were their lives like? Um, so start looking, I start by looking into those things. And then the next thing that I do is go to maps, particularly old maps, because for Great Smoky Mountains, it's a little weird. The um, Tennessee Valley, um, I think it's like River Association or something like flooded an area like they they put in a dam and it flooded what would have been this African American Freedsman town and things like that. So I'm looking at old maps. and I'm like, okay, what is where like, where are the rivers? You know, when would it flood? How far back would you like your houses to be? Is there anything there? Has anyone talked about the families that were there? Oral history, WPA, um, archives and things like that. And I was like, would those people have had enough land or had enough of a need to hire either indentured servants or purchase enslaved people? So like, that is how I look at it. I know that doesn't really um, talk as much about the indigenous perspective, I guess. Um, in that, but I also do a lot of reading to say, okay, what what is someone else's perspective and not just what we get from the history book or from this like, you know, bright, shiny sort of prompt that they have in front of a kind of lefty falls or whatever it is, because that's going to tell one type of story. And I'm like, no, what were the indigenous names for this place? What did it mean? What did they see and finding those books or finding those resources and reading them and asking people, so. Thank you for your work on that. And I love your writing. Thank you so Aww. much for being with us. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this is the end of our episode. Everything that we discussed today, which I know is a lot of things, will be in the show notes if you want to reference anything later. Our live show happens every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, and then the recorded episode is available to stream every Thursday, and you can find it on all of your major podcast apps and some of the smaller ones too. And you can also watch this on YouTube. Please subscribe, rate us five stars, leave a good review, yada, 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 share it. Those things really help me a lot. Also, we're unsponsored. So if you feel like, you know, giving me a little tip supporting the podcast, I would really appreciate it. You can find a link to our donation info everywhere. I hope to see you again next week. Bye.